hear Oprah say my name and I think I'm hallucinating. She said, Chris Witherspoon, like that. She said, Chris, I made it my mission and my core principle. When I got my talk show, no one will ever tell me what I can and cannot ask. If they do, they're not coming on my show. And she said, at least if I ask the question, my audience knows I did my job for them. But taught me, Chris, always stand in your truth. Through, through, through. Welcome to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores exceptional career success stories, inspiring and insightful personal brand journeys that answer the question, are you coffee or are you Starbucks? Fascinating conversations with leaders about their career breakthroughs from entertainment, tech, media, and more. You'll learn how they've turned up the volume on their brand to unlock success. Firsthand, uncensored, and real, as told by people who've been there and plenty of inspiration and practical tools to help you lead with your brand every day as you drive towards your next career breakthrough. And now, here's your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Hey everybody, Jason Patria here, and you are listening to the Lead With Your Brand podcast, which is the podcast for folks just like you who are looking to turn up the volume, show your value, and lead with your brand to your next career breakthrough. Well, I have another amazing guest today. It is Chris Witherspoon, who is the founder and CEO of Pop Viewers. But before we get to Chris, it is Black History Month, and here at the Lead With Your Brand podcast, we are celebrating all February. Check us out at leadwithyourbrand.com slash blackvoices, where you can see our collection of some of our favorite guests from the past few seasons who have amazing career stories and brand journeys and all who just happen to be executives, leaders, and influencers who are Black. I'm also joined this month with my fabulous co-host, Ingrid Hadley, the founder and CEO of ILH Possibilities. Ingrid, let's talk all about bringing your best authentic self to work. It's a buzzword we throw around. I talk about it is core to leading with your brand that you don't want to be somebody else. You got to be you and the best you you can be. So give me your thoughts on being your best authentic self. Well, the first thing that I would say is that, you know, being your authentic self, I feel like is like kind of a double-edged sword, right? So I think most people would say, regardless of race or ethnicity or cultural affiliation, right? I think being your authentic self is still thought of as maybe not so cool, right? Like we still have this professional behaviors that need to show up, but then we have to look at the word professionalism and systemically what that looks like in the workplace. And sometimes professionalism can be very synonymous with whiteness. Right. Like what is making kind of the bigger white male population more comfortable or more safe? Yeah. And so when we talk about it being a double edged sword, you know, I'll think about myself. So you knew me at NBC Universal. So anytime I showed up and I was presenting, I never wore my hair curly. I never wore French braids. Right. I never did any of that until the week that I was leaving uh, (laughs) the company. Right. Because I had this image 
right? You know, I would be in a, a suit and heels and it was what I had been groomed into. I'm a baby boomer. And so yeah. for black people coming from, you know, Gen Xers, baby boomers, we were told that we should act and look a certain way. Yeah. So even the way that we speak, right? I'm expected to be this extremely articulate person, but I've had to be honest with you when I'm at home. And even <laughs> when I'm talking to you, I would, I know, I, right? right? I would rather use my AAVE, African-American vernacular English, right? Yeah. Like, and, and be more, it's more comfortable to me, but I have the ability to code switch. And I think what we have to understand is entering any room, we have to assess whether I can be my fully authentic self. Is it safe to be that person or do I need to code switch now? Mm. I'm not advocating that anyone code switch, but I think yeah. as you're entering rooms, you have to decide whether those are rooms for you. See, I think this is more of a decision for us than it is for anyone else. Yeah. We should be going into environments that celebrate and edify us and not tolerate us. So celebrate us, not tolerate us, right? And so how do we begin to create those opportunities? We have to think about who we are. And before we even interview for roles or promote into different divisions, what is the culture of that division? What is the leader's mindset towards these things? Because if we don't, then we can enter an environment that is not accepting of us. Yeah. And then half of the time that we're there, we're assimilating, right? And not being authentically ourselves, as opposed to being able to work and just think and bring our own lived experiences and perspectives to great products and business. Yeah. And I love this whole notion of, right, when we're interviewing, when we're looking at great companies that we want to work for, like, we need to have that mindset that we're shopping, That's right? right. We're, we're shopping for the career choice and the job choice that is a great match for us, right? It's like when I go to the, the store and I try on clothes, it's like it might look really great on the window. And when I put it on me, it does not look good. So I'm not walking out buying that outfit. It's kind of the same thing. I mean, it, it thinks back, Ingrid, you know, like I wanted to work for this huge Hollywood company like my entire childhood. And I did work for them. But I mean, from day one in orientation, there was things telling me there that were like, we don't value the same things, That's right? right? Now, for me, I still felt like I was being my best authentic self, right? But I could see that those things weren't valued. And I ended up walking across the street to one of their competitors. It makes me think, though, I probably should have made that switch a lot sooner. Right. And and really understanding, because it, it's a huge mental burden as well, right, to go into an environment that doesn't feel like it is welcoming you in. And by the way, this is not on purpose. Like, I don't think anyone is intentionally yeah. saying, I'm going to trigger a black employee or a person of color in the workplace today. But because I'm not necessarily integrated into that workplace or my values are not integrated into that workplace, it just doesn't seem like a fit. Right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I think the onus of authentic self is really on us. Yeah, I do. I believe that, you know, as I said before, go where you're celebrated and not where you're tolerated. Mm, absolutely. And at the end of the day, right, your career is a journey. So it's all about making strategic choices and trade-offs. So it's not like there's the exact same thing you need to do in every career situation. It's like, what's the right thing for you right now? 
That's right. That's right. And that can change over time. And I think that's what's amazing as well. As you know, even when we talk about natural hair, we now have the Crown Act, right, where it's actually illegal in some states to discriminate against someone's hair. Right. But because I grew up and I have super curly hair and it was just always perceived as being unprofessional. And, you know, if I wore French braids to work, it's like, oh, are you going on vacation? It's like, (laughs) (laughs) no, this is the hairstyle I choose. Right. And so something as simple as that, though, going back to what we talked about, uh, I think a couple episodes, impressions are formed in the first seven seconds. Yeah. And so what are you thinking about me when you see me? When you hear me speak, what are you thinking about me? Yeah. I should be able to control some of that narrative. Absolutely. Well, I love talking to you, Ingrid, and I know we'll be back next week to continue our conversation. All right. I look forward to it, Jason. Thank you, Ingrid. So much great advice, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Today's guest is Chris Witherspoon. Now, he is an entertainment journalist, producer, and entrepreneur with a signature accessible approach to media and culture. He is the founder and CEO of Pop Viewers, the platform that helps you find what to watch next, invites you to react to the TV and movies you've watched, and encourages you to share the experience with fellow content lovers. He's also an entertainment contributor for NBC News and MSNBC. Now, prior, Chris served as an entertainment correspondent for Fandango and CNN and was the entertainment editor at thegrio.com. Now, he has interviewed folks like Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, Oprah Winfrey, and Viola Davis. Now, he first got his take of media as an intern way back at ABC's Good Morning America, and he's an alum of the prestigious and iconic NBC Page program. We'll be back with Chris Witherspoon, founder and CEO of Pop Viewers, in just a moment. For over 25 years, Jason has coached, trained, and developed thousands of leaders and executives, helping them achieve their next career breakthrough. He's a featured speaker at global conferences and companies to help everyone bring their best authentic self to work, show their value, and lead with their brand every day. Get more tips and tools at leadwithyourbrand.com. And we are back. I have an amazing guest with us today. It is the founder and CEO of Pop Viewers, Chris Witherspoon. Chris, what is going on? Hi, Jason. Um, I am living my best life and so excited to be here with you today. Well, I am thrilled that you are here. Now, I always ask folks because we always talk about, you know, the elevator pitch and being able to introduce yourself to folks. I know that you are someone that's out there constantly networking in 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 the business and as a founder. Tell us when you first meet people, how do you introduce yourself and explain who you are and what it is that you do? Oh, this is a good question, Jason. Um, well, first off, I always lead with founder and CEO of Pop Viewers. We are a content discovery platform delivering next level customer sentiment to uh, content creators, brands, and studios. Um, and then I always talk about also that I've worked as an entertainment journalist for 10 plus years. And you might see me on the Today Show, MSNBC, uh, different NBC 
ABC News platforms uh, talking about movies, TV shows, and pop culture. So, I mean, I feel like you do so much cool stuff, (laughs) but talk to me right now a little bit about what is hot and happening at Pop Viewers. Listen, I mean, we're in a really great place as a company. Um, We are with our MVP product right now in the marketplace, and we're locking in a bunch of great partnerships. We landed a partnership uh, last year with Steve Harvey. We have a partnership with uh, mm. Joy Reid, who's also uh, MSNBC host. She's a great ambassador yes. of our product and one of our biggest I cheerleaders. I love her show. We'll get into Joy later on because she's a big part of my career <laughs> as Joy Reid. Um, but also, we are going to be featured uh, in February 2023 um, in uh, a series on that will air on Peacock. It's called Comcast, NBC Universal, Lift Labs, Founding in Color series. It's a three-part documentary, and we're in episode one, uh, and it should be great for us in terms of exposure and just pushing the needle forward as we're growing our company and landing more partnerships and uh, talking to some venture capital funds. Wow. I mean, this is super exciting, but I want you to go back in time a little bit, Chris. Um, You know, before you were a CEO and founder, right? Before you were an on-air personality and, 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 and journalist, when you look back over your career, what are a couple of those moments that you would consider those career breakthrough moments that really kind of helped you get to where you are today? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think that for me, I'll start back even earlier uh, my childhood. I grew up in a small town, yeah. uh, a very small town, Warren, Ohio. Uh, it's in the Northeast. Most people are blue collar workers. My family was, we were what we, you would consider poor. Uh, we struggled uh, financially. We were mm. evicted three different times from our homes. So by the time I was 17, wow. we were evicted. Uh, we had lost, um, you know, the home that we had, the, the third home, and were houseless. We were houseless for about six months, uh, bouncing from different relatives' homes, living in the basements of their homes. And, you know, I always tell people that although I grew up in what we consider poverty, we sort of always had access to a TV and we had like three channels. So we never had cable. Couldn't afford that. Uh, and when we had, <laughs> when the power was working, uh, we had three channels. And that was ABC, NBC, and CBS. And TV yeah. really raised me. Like as corny as it sounds, it was my lifeline. It was my outlet. It was my friend, you know, that understood me and understood the nu- the nuances of me that I couldn't really even express yet. I would come home from school and I'd be watching Oprah and Sally Jesse Raphael and Montel and Maury. Uh, and then I'd go right into primetime and watch whatever was on those three channels for primetime. So, you know, TV was my lifeline. And I always dreamed and hoped of one day being able to work in the room where it happens, be in the room where it happens, uh, be in the studio, yeah. be around those anchors and journalists, and also the stars that really helped me dream dreams that were bigger than me based on the roles they were playing in the movies that they starred in. So fast forward, I did get a chance to finally make it to New York after putting myself through college at Ohio University. Uh, I landed an internship at Good Morning America. And that was probably my biggest career breakthrough. You know, being in Good yeah. Morning America studio back in 2004, uh, working with Diane Sawyer, Robin Roberts, Charlie Gibson, Tony Perkins, seeing all these stars coming into the green room where I was working or downstairs where I was the audience coordinator. Um, and then after the show was over, I go work for um, this woman. Her name was Shelly Ross. She was the EP of Good Morning America mm. at the time. I would answer her phones yeah. because her assistant was on maternity leave. So I was like, I was thrown into the fire <laughs> uh, in the business. But Exactly. 
But you know what, Jason? I felt so right at home. I felt like I belonged there. I felt inspired. And I also began yeah. to realize I was doing something right because I was standing out. My internship bosses, they saw something in me and they kept giving me opportunities um, that they weren't giving all the other interns. And so I realized, you know what, Chris? Maybe this dream you have of being in the room, maybe it's a real dream and you deserve to be here. Yeah. And what were some of the things that you were doing to stand out? Oh, my God. So I always tell people this funny story. When I <laughs> when I got to Good Morning America, uh, again, I got to New York City by a miracle. It was just God's graces that got me here. Uh, I had little to no money to live on. I was living in the basement of one of my mom's friends in Brooklyn. Um, and I brought like five outfits with me to intern. And I was like, I'll figure it out once I get there. But they were all like dress clothes. Because in my mind, if I'm going to Good Morning America, I'm going to be wearing the best that I had to offer. Yeah. And I had gone to Columbus, this store, I can't remember the name, of it, but it was a thrift store where you could buy like nice, you know, nice clothes for like $2, yeah. $3, whatever. So I had bought a bunch of really cute looks, uh, I'm going to say really cute outfits um, <laughs> that, that, that were like next to nothing. And so I would go to work dressed in like what people considered like church clothes. I'll never forget, <laughs> I'll never forget my first day. Some of the interns were there and we're like getting ready to, uh, you know, they're, they're orientating us, whatever. And this girl was like, um, you look nice, but you like you wear church clothes. And I was like, well, you know what? I am. I It is by the grace of God, a lot of prayers from church folks that I am here right now. And I take it very seriously. Yeah. Even though I might be doing grunt work as an intern, I wanted them to know that when I come into this building, I don't want you to see me wearing sneakers or flip-flops or jeans. You know, I want you to know I take this very seriously. And I'm very grateful to be here. And it's so funny. My very first day, I'll never forget this, Usher was there. Wow. And Usher was doing... Um, he was doing the song, the album that has the song Yeah on there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm singing for you guys. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm walking in during the orientation, and my boss is kind of like showing me around the studio. He's doing like his rehearsal sound check. In between songs, he stopped to tell me he loved my shirt. He like pointed me out. He was like, I love your shirt. It was a button up. It was a button up pink striped shirt from the thrift store, by the way. Um, probably from the <laughs> 80s, but I think I wore it well. I was very confident. And I think everyone in the room took note that why is Usher stopping to point out our new intern? Does he know him? He didn't know me. I think, but he saw that I was dressed nice at five in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I think I think dress for the job that you want, not the one that you have. And secondly, I used to, during the meetings that we would be able to uh, join in on, I will pull my chair up to the table. A lot of the interns would sit on the back, you know, in the back. They would have like, you know, we didn't have like smartphones back then, but they would not be paying attention. You know, um, they'd be kind of zoning out, sleeping. I'd bring a little notepad and take notes like I was one of the producers and I was not. But I I wanted to learn how they did what they did to build the show. Yeah. And although I might not have taken up space and talked, I still took up space. And I think that that showed me it's okay to pull your seat up to the table when you get access yeah. to the room to be at the table. Yeah, right. And not like throw it away playing on your phone in the back, right? Yeah. And you know what else? And 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 don't be afraid to don't be afraid to be present and take up space. Like sometimes when you get a job and you're an intern, you know, you feel like, okay, I should be just lucky to be here. Let me not take up space. Let me hide and be in the corner because no one wants to hear my thoughts. But at the end of the day, after six or eight weeks, they began asking me my opinion because they recognized, yeah. okay, he's a demo. He's 21 years old, a demo that we might not be reaching right now. 
Um, and his opinion matters. And I also made sure I learned how to state my opinion the right way, not to, you know, start talking mm. and rambling, but I kind of began watching the different folks when they would speak. It was always quick and concise, you know, and you had to be yeah. okay with your idea being shot down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like show up, have an opinion and the confidence and, and do it quickly. Um, now, Chris, I know that you're you were also a, a famous NBC page. So t- talk to us about that. How 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 was it like getting into that program? And then I know that must have been wild working at 30 Rock and all of those great things. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I left. I left. Good morning, America. I went back to OU and I graduated. And then I came back six months later. I saved up enough money to come back to New York City. Um, but I had no job, Jason. So when I first got back to New York <laughs> in 05, I was a busboy at a restaurant on 51st and 9th, no longer there. It was called Vintage. Um, and it's so funny. So I, I had applied to the NBC page program like three different times. And I wound up meeting a guy. Funny story. I helped him carry a washing machine downstairs in the building that I lived in. And he <laughs> happened to know the CEO's assistant at the time, his name was Bob Wright was the CEO. He happened to know yeah. Bob Wright's assistant. Her name is Jamitha Fields. And he got my resume to her. And I don't know if Jamitha, ever, I never asked her if she ever put in a good word for me. What I do know is I finally got the interview, the first mm. round interview. Uh, then I got the second round interview. Then I got the third round interview and I got into the, into the page program. And that was an opportunity that it really changed my life. You know, I think being in the page program, it is like being in grad school for a year uh, with the best and brightest in the industry, people who have dreamed of having that job and they really want to pull their chair up to the table. Okay. You are with yeah. people that aren't afraid to raise their hand, that they aren't afraid to, to take up space. Um, and you also have to figure out in the midst of all this competition, how do you find your lane? How do you uh, create your own distinctive voice? Um, and and yeah, I had a I had an amazing time in the page program. Uh, it's funny. I watched Aubrey Plaza host SNL uh, recently, and I was so I, was I know screaming. wasn't it spectacular? Oh my god, I was screaming in my bed because I used to tour with Aubrey. Um, I was the page 05 through 06 for the full year. I stayed till they kicked me out of the program after you after you you're out. <laughs> but I stayed. <laughs> Because um, after I had my Today Show Green Room assignment, I was like, okay, I want to really just stay in the building and take up space, meet as many execs as I can, and figure out what I want to do next from a place of abundance, not scarcity. So I gave tours. I gave tours for my, for my last four months of the program. Most pages don't go back to touring. They go on to like an, a, like a, a full-time job. They land something. For me, I wasn't getting the offers that I wanted. Ooh. So I kept touring. So I trained Aubrey. I was one of the pages. Oh, my whenever gosh. New pages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when new pages came. But don't say, oh, my gosh. Because she ended up. She ended up getting fired from the program. She jokes about it now. <gasps> but <laughs> I think I, I definitely recall doing a few tours with Aubrey and showing her my loose, fabulous, fun way of touring that's very scripted, but there's unscripted moments. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm so proud of her. I'm so proud of her. And uh, I'm one of her biggest fans. Yeah. Yeah, she is. She's spectacular. So now talk to me. Once you did all of these assignments, how is it that you actually, you know, got permanent roles and actually became, you know, correspondents at places like Fandango and, and CNN and then ultimately the Grio? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was in the paid program. I left the program after my full year, as I mentioned to you, because I knew I wanted to be on air talent. So I left the program. 
went to go work at a hotel in Soho for two years, which is so random, but it was like, it was better pay than the page, than the page program. Everyone knows you don't get paid much from being a page. (laughs) Better pay and benefits, which we did not get as a page either back then. Um, And I did it for two years. And then a friend of mine, her name is Lauren Skaronsky. She uh, recently left her role as an SVP of comms. Um, but she was working as an assistant to the VP of, of NBC News Communications. Her name was Allison Gullis. Yeah. So Lawrence Garansky yeah. called me. I'm working at this hotel. She, and me and Lauren were pages together. So she remembered my work ethic. Um, and we just always had great times as a page. And she was like, Chris, I know that you're living your best life working at this hotel. But I really think you'd be <laughs> great to replace me. I'm getting promoted. Uh, and part of my job It's not just answering Allison's phones and booking her travel. She was like, I also do some junior publicity work. So, for example, for the Today Show Summer Concert Series, I help arrange the press pen for that. And I'm out there with the hosts from Access Hollywood and ET and all these shows where I think you'd be great to be a host one day. And I'm also watching Miley Cyrus or whomever's on the stage. I'm literally right on the side of the stage. So she was like, Chris, I think you'd be great for this job. Jason, I didn't want the job. Yeah. So I ended up talking to Allison, and I liked Allison. That's why I took the job. I didn't think I was going to love the job so much because I was like, oh, my God, nine to five, uh, as if. Um, But (laughs) I knew I wanted to work for this woman because she was just so – can I say badass? Yeah, of course. Yeah, she was just so badass and so confident in her skin and almost the kind of person that didn't need that job, but she she wanted to work there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I like that energy. So – I worked for Allison Gullis for two years, and then uh, after working for her for two years, Jeff Zucker, the CEO of NBC Universal, uh, his assistant was leaving to go work for Jimmy Fallon, and he called me up and asked me to come work for him. Wow! So I became Jeff Zucker's personal assistant. He had two assistants. One was more executive. That was Lindsay uh, Lindsay King. Lindsay Coppola is her new name after getting married. I was yeah. in her wedding. Um, me and her are still best friends <laughs> to this day. But I worked for Jeff Zucker for two years until Comcast acquired the company. So I really watched. I watched the whole acquisition. I watched um, the late night debacle that happened in 2010. Exactly. Um, I mean, I got stories. I got memoirs upon memoirs that I could write, okay? <laughs> um, but when when Jeff decided he was leaving uh, the company in 2011, he got me a job at the Grio. He called me into his office and he said, Chris, what do you want to do next? And I said to him, Jeff, I want to be an entertainment correspondent. And he was like, well, you don't have any training in that. So um, I can try to get you a job like at a local station at one of the NBC O&Os to be like, a general assignment reporter where you can kind of cut your teeth and learn. And I was like, ooh, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> um, and I also knew I also knew my best friend and I were expecting a baby. So I also knew my best friend was like two months pregnant with my child. So I needed to be in New York. I didn't tell him that then. He didn't know that part yet. Um, but <laughs> He said to me, Chris, the Grio NBC News just acquired it. Uh, let me talk to Steve Kappas and see if we can get you a job working at the Grio. Go yeah. meet them, number one. See if they like you and you like them. And maybe you can go there, learn more about this craft, and begin doing you know, celebrity entertainment stuff for them. And so I did. I, I went there. Uh, we gelled. Uh, I was there for about six months working at the Grio as an associate editor. And then uh, an angel arrived. Her name was Joy Reid. <laughs> she became our managing editor in August 2011. And the first time I had a meeting with Joy, 
Drake calls me into like a little nook on the fourth floor of NBC, like one of these little nooks you can go do a meeting in. And she was doing a review. She was like new there doing a review of my current role. And she was like, okay, um, first off, you are so fabulous. Why are you sitting behind a desk just writing pieces for us? Why aren't you on air? And I was like, oh, darling, I want to be on air. <laughs> um, can you help me? Can you please help me? I am ready to be the Oprah of the Grio. Um, and so she did. She said, Chris, I'm changing your title to entertainment editor. Um, I'm going to be your new advocate in this building. I'm going to begin pitching you for MSNBC. And by the way, Joy was the managing editor of the Grio, but she also had a role as uh, on-air talent for MSNBC. Yeah, she wasn't hosting, but she was doing like she was a contributor. So she already was pitching herself, but she began stepping up and saying. You guys need to have our entertainment editor on the Tamron Hall show or on Tamron Hall's hour she was yeah. hosting or various hours of MSNBC because he's good and we have a scoop as well to tell. And so I did that for five years. I interviewed everyone from Oprah to Harrison Ford to Denzel Washington. Um, I can go on and on. And, uh, who, who was your toughest interview when you were at the Grio? Oh, that's a good one. Toughest. No one's ever asked me toughest. They've asked me my favorite. Um, let me think. I want to say my toughest was Ray J. Mm. Um, he's a rapper. Um, and I think it was tough because I asked a question that kind of stopped the interview. And after that question, he just kind of shut down. Ooh. He was there promoting like, uh, I want to say it was like a VH1 show or an oxygen show he was doing. And Whitney Houston had just died the yeah. year before. Or maybe she had died that year. And because I had covered that story so in-depth for MSNBC and The Grio, I knew that Ray J and Whitney Houston had been seen out and about together the, the year that she died. They had become really good friends, and no one knew the backstory to it. And so I just asked a question about like his fondest memory, um, his thoughts on her legacy after passing. And he looked at his publicist, and he was like, cut the interview. <laughs> and I was like, oh. I was like, ooh, what happened? What happened? Um, and... The publicist came to me and said, no Whitney Houston questions. But what I can say is after that, the energy had just changed. And so that was pretty tough. And I think for me, I'll go from that to my favorite interview. Because I think for me, it taught me, Chris, you have to be true to who you are in interviews and never be afraid to ask the questions that people at home are are wondering about. Yeah. And I'll bring it back to my favorite, Oprah. My first time, I interviewed Oprah three times at the Grio. Ooh. My first time was for her film she did called The Butler. Mm. So I interviewed her in the room, but what's crazy, Jason, is after the interview's over, I'm in the hallway waiting to interview Lee Daniels, and I see, I hear Oprah say my name, and I think I'm hallucinating. But she said, Chris Witherspoon, like that. She said, Chris, I made it my mission and my core principle when I got my talk show. No one will ever tell me what I can and cannot ask. If they do, they're not coming on my show. And she said, at least if I ask the question, my audience knows I did my job for them. It taught me, Chris, always stand in your truth. Always be authentic to what you feel, what you're curious about. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, that's what your audience, you're, you're an advocate for them. You're advocating for what they want to know. Yeah. Yeah. And now, now, Chris, tell me, how did you then pivot and transition from being an on-air talent to really being a founder and CEO of a platform? Okay. So after I worked for The Grio, I moonlighted for two years at CNN as an entertainment analyst and um, went on to Fandango and Rotten Tomatoes. But I remember there was a moment, probably right around 2014, 
working at the Grio in particular, where I began seeing how these micro conversations, right, that were happening on Twitter, yeah. Facebook, social media, uh, around black content, like shows like Scandal or Viola Davis's show on uh, on yeah. ABC, um, how they were trending. How, how to they get were away breaking. with murder. Yes, there we go. They, they, they were becoming like, Scandal was the first primetime Twitter event that happened every single Thursday yeah. for all those weeks. And no one could explain how it was trending and how it was shifting culture. Although critics didn't love Scandal. That was never a critic darling. Um, mm-hmm. But it was shattering rec- records and even more, it was amplifying these voices of a marginalized community. So I saw that happen with TV shows. I saw it with Empire and I covered Empire for CNN and how that show was breaking records, but more importantly, it was breaking records on social media. And I also saw how critics did not see that show. They weren't they weren't giving it great, you know, reviews yeah. or talking about it highly. Uh, and I saw it happen with a lot of films, with Tyler Perry films, Will Packer's movies, um, Kevin Hart's films were over-indexing at the box office, but yet critics weren't, you know, giving them great reviews. So I began to see a disconnect, Jason, between what critics felt mm. and what you know audiences felt, in particular, uh, black and brown audiences, the LGBTQ plus community that was making RuPaul's Drag Race a juggernaut hit. Yeah. But at the time, it wasn't getting love from critics. This is like back in 2014, 2015. And so I kept my eyes on that throughout the next five years of my career. And when I left Fandango and Rotten Tomatoes, I really was impassioned to create a platform that would amplify, amplify the voices of marginalized communities, um, you know, and really help provide analytics to the studios around why people are watching shows. Why are di- mm. our diverse audiences obsessed with White Lotus? Yeah. You know, there's not a black character on there, but we're obsessed. Why are we watching The Crown? Uh, why are women, you know, obsessed with RuPaul's Drag Race when it's not necessarily a show where you feature, you know, white women? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is, it is, but they're a key demo of who watches that show and who engages on our platform around that show. So I wanted to create a platform that could help people discover what to watch next. It's what I it's what I had been doing. And actually, I, I still get to go on a Today Show and other places and discuss, you know, new shows and new films. And I do it now as founder and CEO of Pop Viewers. But I wanted to just give the viewers a seat at the table. And we're doing that. That's so amazing. Now, what's been the biggest change that you've had to make as uh, as a business person and a leader to run a platform in addition to the great on-air stuff that you do? Ooh, um, how long do we have? Because I can go on and on and on about that. <laughs> um, listen, I think that it's, it's a constant sort of um, – a constant – journey to remind myself I deserve to be a leader. I think that at the end of the Mm. day, um, working for the big companies that I've worked for, uh, sometimes you can get very used to being a soldier, you know, getting, being a soldier, here are your commands. Here's what I'm going to do. You're checking in to ask, did I do a good job? Was I good enough? Um, how'd you like my appearance? How was my segment producer or, or EP? Um, do you want to renew my contract again? I think when you lead, you have to pull from a different set of tools that I'm still learning how to use those, how to, Mm. um, you know, really, put away the idea of imposter syndrome and recognize Mm. that I deserve to be doing this, that I am a leader um, and surrounding myself with people who are bright and intelligent and smart that can help me bring my vision to life. So it's something that I'm 
I'm constantly learning. Um, and I surround myself with a lot of other founders who are, you know, sort of new to this as well, yeah. who are very successful that are able to tell me, you know, here's what I did in year two. Here's what I did in year three. Mm. You're going to hit this bump in the road as, as in year three. Here's how to handle it. Uh, but it's an ongoing sort of journey to um, continue to level up. And to continue to be the kind of leader that I always wanted. You know, one of the best things that I got to do was work for Jeff Zucker. Yeah. And I got to watch Jeff Zucker when he was CEO of uh, NBC Universal. I got to watch him, you know, slay a lot of dragons. And I got to see him <laughs> run this massive, massive company. But one of the best things that Jeff ever gave me, and I told him this all the time, was the days where I got to watch him fail. Mm. Or the days that I got to watch him beat up bruised and battered, walk out of that office at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., but I got to see him in the morning, get back up and be the first one there, yeah. and smiling and whistling, walking in. <laughs> and who's on my call sheet, Chris? And you know, to me, it's like seeing that not every day is going to be a good day, and part of the journey is are the bumps, are the, the, the bruises, are the failures, but you're defined by how you get up and how you get back in the game every single morning. That's what I try to be about when I run my company. Yeah. And so talk to me, what's been maybe one of your failures that you've learned the most from and, and really grown? That's a great question. I think, I think one of my failures early on was trying to launch perfect versions of our product. Yeah. So um, what I heard uh, about a year into our company, someone told me, I believe it was Steve Jobs said this, that if you launch your product and it's perfect, you waited too late. Mm. So for me, when we were like kind of in the beta testing phase, yeah. I really was always obsessing over, no, that feature should be here. That's not, that's not how we envisioned it, or this isn't functioning the exact way that we said it would, or that I thought it would. And sometimes I think earlier on, I was so focused on the fit and finish and on launching this perfect, elegant, um, fully functional, fully optimized MVP version of our product. And the reality is, you know, it's okay to launch something and learn from it. I don't know how many times I've had Apple tell me they have to fix a bug, you know, <laughs> or they, you know, I have to. I have to do an update to my phone. And it's not just me. It's hundreds of millions of people across the world because they yeah. launched something a little too soon, but they got the learning from it so they can fix this. Yeah. And so for me, yeah. I think the failure was my ego, Ooh. my ego wanting to be perfect. Uh, sometimes when you do what I've done for many years and you're on TV, they put you into wardrobe. Then you go into hair and makeup after your rehearsal. And like when you get out there, you're kind of aiming for a perfect segment, right? Yeah. When you're doing technology and you're putting it in front of the masses, you have to recognize that perfection is sometimes just launching it. Getting it to a launch yeah. and getting it in people's hands is perfection. If you got to put out an update the next day, you do that. Yeah. Wow. Great, great learnings there. Now, Chris, I want to talk a little bit about your brand, both as uh, as on-air talent as well as a founder and CEO. Give me three words that uh, you would use to describe brand Chris Witherspoon. Ooh, I would say polished, mm. casual, joyful. Ooh, polished, casual, and joyful. So talk to me a little bit about polished and casual, because I love that they're, that, that those things don't seem to go together. They so don't. how do those, how does that intersection come together and be uniquely Chris? 
You know, I think that at the end of the day, I get to go in these rooms, right? I get to go in the rooms with some of the biggest stars in the world, um, the most successful CEOs in the world. But I'm still this kid who grew up in a small town. You know, the first house I lived in until sixth grade, we had a cornfield behind my house. So I grew up, you know, covered in mud and dirt in the summer and, you know, during my (laughs) breaks. And after school, we'd go play in the cornfield with my friends. Um, and like we had a literally like a forest, a forest, like Sherwood Forest to the left of the cornfield. So we'd be, we were literally out there, um, not just casual, but covered in mud and, and, you know, living that, that country lifestyle. So for me, I find that when I get into the room now and I'm talking to executives or folks that can help me push my idea forward, they want to know who I am. Yeah. And they don't necessarily just want to see the polished, refined version of Chris who, you know, can sit all proper and say, hello. Um, <laughs> they want to know the fullness of who I am. They want to see the bruises. They want to see the scrapes of my knees from where I fell down when I was a kid or at least hear about them. Uh, and it's so funny. Uh, I had an, an, an honor and privilege to sit down with Jeff Shell recently, Yeah. Um, the CEO of NBC Universal. It was a full circle moment for me. My first time being back to that executive floor. Um, and I emailed him to just tell him more about my company and get his advice. And I sat down with him and I'm fine saying this. I hope he hears it. The first half an hour, Jeff Sheldon asked me one question about my company. He asked me about me. And in my mind, I'm like, is this man out of his mind? He wants to hear me talk about my childhood, (laughs) how I grew up, you know, every single thing I would say, he would say, oh, but so how'd your family, you know, when you were evicted, how'd you get to OU? How'd you figure out how to go to college? And then yeah. how'd you pay for it? You know, and, 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 and he was so enamored by me and my story. And the more he asked me to tell me about, tell him about me, the more I let go of the insecurity and the mm. nervousness of being too casual. And I recognized that maybe this is what some executives do. Maybe sometimes they want to know who you are so that they can then bet on your vision. Yeah. And I recognize that it's okay to bring that casual side of who I am. And then about a half an hour in, he said, so tell me about your company. I want to hear about pop viewers. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And then I, and then I brought the polished Chris and I'm telling him my elevator pitch and I'm telling him my big high flying arrows of what I believe our company can achieve in the media. Um, and it was an amazing meeting. And it probably, you know, out of all the bosses I've had, out of all the, you know, um, important people I've met, he shifted my perspective on how a meeting can go because he wanted to know me. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure he had, he had many, many more meetings that day that were like super important and emails to answer, but he let me take up space and bring all of who I am, not just the polished side of who I am to that meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And I love Jeff is such a, a great leader, but it really kind of reminds me that it's really about people investing in you as a person mm. and trusting that on top of just wanting to invest in a business, right? Because really businesses are about the people that lead them. Thank you, Jason. And you know, it's funny, um, early on in my journey with my company, every single person who invested in our company, who brought us a check, they always said the same thing. And I was like, are y'all talking to each other? They said, <laughs> they said, literally, Jason, they would say at some point, I would hear this sentence, I'm betting on you. I'm betting on you. I understand your vision. I kind of understand what pop viewers does. Some folks that don't know entertainment at all don't get the importance of viewer sentiment, you know? 
um, and, and Nielsen and analytics. They don't get all of that. But I've always heard them say, I'm betting on you. I, I believe in you. Yeah. And I'm writing this check because of you. And what yeah. I realize is whether it's you're a CEO of a, of a startup like me or you're a big executive going to you know apply to work for Peloton or, or Spotify – you best believe when you go meet with the CEO, they're going to want to know who you are. They're going to want to know about, you know, a few stories, you know, that you can tell them that will let them know what kind of leader you're going to be because they already have your resume in front of them. They know what college you went to probably. They know the different roles you have. No ask you questions about that. But I believe people bet on people, especially as you get higher up that chain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a fun uh, connection to Jeff Shell. So Jeff Shell was the executive sponsor of a program I was running at the NBC Universal Talent Lab called Drive, a big senior executive program. We were in Silicon Valley and I had the chance to interview Mark Andreessen, um, of course, from Andreessen Horowitz, right? Big v- VC. And the thing that shocked me because he's kind of has a reputation for being a little gruff and rough and 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 all of those things is he basically said, you know, everyone who pitches us for VC funding, like all of their ideas are great, right? All of the platforms are great, but like I only look to invest in people who are like willing to listen and learn and that I actually trust can actually be be big leaders because like anyone can grow something in a garage. Ooh. But like when you're scaling a business, you have to just be more than an inventor or a founder, right? Mm. You actually have to be someone that people want to work for. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And and so tell me, because part of who you are, and I'm feeling it through our whole conversation, is this joyful piece. Now, I don't think I, I don't hear from a lot of people that they describe themselves as joyful and certainly not men in our culture. So mm. talk to me about how do you bring joy forward as a thing that you're known for and that you value? Well, you know, people talk a lot about service um, and how important service is to anything you do. And I realized that one of the things that I bring to people that is, it's capital, it's capital that I possess, that is something that I can give away that cost me nothing is a smile, is a smile. It's, you know, it's, it's energy. And I recognize that I am someone who actually wakes up in a good mood, no matter what my day was before. I wake up in a good mood, and a lot of that comes from gratitude. Yeah, I am very grateful to be in this body, to be healthy, to um, be able to take up space, and to get to do what I do. No one, if you would have asked anyone when I was in 11th grade or 12th grade, would Chris Witherspoon be on the Today Show and be announced as founder and CEO of a company on a regular basis, they would have laughed in your face. Yeah. You know, I've, I've defied so many odds to be where I am right now. I can't help but smile and laugh and giggle, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and someone once said that happiness is something that is temporary. Joy you know, it's something that's permanent. You can't, no Mm. one can take it away from you. When you have joy, you can face any kind of mountain. You can climb the mountain and have scrapes on your, on your elbows and you might even fall off of it, but you can still get up and laugh because you're just happy to be there. And for me, I try to, as a service now, you know, I try to give that away. I try to make sure I set my intention before I go into a meeting, before I 
you know, go on a segment for a show, I say, someone's watching that needs to be lifted up. And Chris, this is what you do. This is your jam, you know? Yeah. Now, now, Chris, tell me, you know, when you talk about being joyful and polished and, and casual, there are times when, you know, your brand, you you run up against people that you're not their cup of tea, mm, right? Or mm. or they kind of share that that stuff doesn't work for them. Give me a, an example of a time or, or share with me, wh- where was a time that you worked with someone or interacted with someone where, you know, kind of who you are and your brand just didn't mesh with them? And how did you handle that? Well, you know, thank God I'm in therapy. So that's one thing. <laughs> Any any kind of moment like that that happens, um, I'm in therapy, so I and I love my therapist, and I I can tell anyone who's listening, please, if you never have given therapy a try, do it. Don't go when you have a meltdown, or don't wait to go when you have a meltdown. Go when you're in a good space because therapy just helps yeah. you feel even better. Um, but anyways, my therapist has taught me, uh, and I'm giving this away to you guys right now. She said one day in my in my session, and it was one day when I had a moment where I did a meeting with someone. And they were not delightful. They were the opposite of, of delightful. And they made me yeah. feel feelings where I wanted, you know, there's fight, there's flight, there's appease. I wanted to flight and run out of that room. Yeah. But I didn't. I stayed in there. But I felt those feelings come up. And so my therapist said to me, she asked me a question. And I was like, is she crazy? But she said, Chris, do you know the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? And I said, I think I do. Yeah. Sort of. You know, one my mom would put it in my mouth when I was sick to take my temperature. The other one is like when I go to the hotel, yeah. it's on the wall and I set it. She said, okay. So she said, your job, your job, the moment you wake up and the moment you leave your house and you go to meetings and you're around people out in the world that might not be your cup of tea, your job is to be that thermostat. You set the temperature you want to be at. So Ooh. just like when you're in a hotel room, you put that thing at, at 70, guess what? It can get as hot as it wants to in that room. It's going to regulate and go right back to 70. It can get cold in there, so it'll go right back to 70. So what I do now before I go into a meeting where I can always tell sometimes, okay, this might not be the group for me. They might not be able to connect with my joy, my personality, my energy. Yeah. But my job is to be that thermostat. My job is to set it, to set where I want to feel, right? Mm. Where I want to feel in that meeting and, and what I want to feel. I'm going to set it there and I'm going to let them do whatever they want to do. But I'm going to stay there. I'm going to stay Ooh. there until that meeting's over and I'm going to walk out and I'm going to feel good. And that's what I do now. And so I know that my job is not necessarily to make you emulate or or reflect back what I feel. My job is to stay there because when I'm there, that's when I'm at my best. And that's when I feel good. And my job uh, is to feel good. Yeah. A- and to bring your best stuff to the table, right? Like, yes. why, why, why are you going to lower yourself because people are feeling blah or boring, right? I have a couple of fun questions to ask you as we we close out. Okay. So Chris, we've been talking about your brand. Mm. Um as a consumer, what brands are you obsessed with or what brand can you not live without? Ooh, okay. Um I would say a brand that I really love is Netflix right now. Mm. Um I think that they've democratized storytelling. Yeah. They've democratized um access to great stories. Um, I love that it's something that my son and I literally every single weekend, we sit down together and you would think that with HBO Max and all the competitors, we kind of be over it, but it still is something that brings really great stories, great content, um, and we're able to do it together. Now, um, if you were a type of car, what type of car would you be? Ooh, Um, I think it'd be a BMW. 
I think I'd be a BMW. And why? That's a good question. I think BMWs are sleek. They're elegant. Um, but they're not so loud that they take up all the all the energy in the room. Mm. Ooh, I love that. The BMW. And finally, Chris, uh, what's the best career advice that you'd like to pass on to our listeners? Okay. Um, I'll tell you a story. When I was in um when I was in high school, getting ready to go to college, um, really rough time in my family's life. And I was, we were houseless at the time, but I had gotten accepted to Ohio University, a huge deal for me and my family. I was going away to college. I was the first person in my family to get into college, to go away to college. And I was at church and this woman who never, ever talks to me came up to me and she gave me a hug and she whispered in my ear, if you don't see the example, be the example. That's all she said. She gave Ooh. me a hug. That's all she said. And I was like, okay, that's kind of odd but i didn't forget it i <laughs> got in the car the ride home i thought about it and when i got to ou i i did it i remember getting to ou and not seeing myself reflected in the student body they weren't like mm. me they didn't show up how i show up and i think to this day as a ceo as a black man as a gay man as a father i make it my business if i don't see the example to be the example and i think that anyone who wants to to grow their career, to reach new heights. Don't be afraid to come into a room and be different and to bring mm. all of your, 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 the parts of who you are that make you stand out. Bring it to your pitch, bring it to your meeting, bring it to the why you want to produce this segment or why you want to create this business. Because at the end of the day, people bet on people and people will always notice uh, a strong, solid example that doesn't exist. Mm. I love that. Well, Chris Witherspoon, it's been so great talking to you and having you on the show. Tell us, where can people learn more about Pop Viewers? So you can download us. We're available right now in the Apple App Store. You can go to our site, popviewers.com. We're on Instagram and social media at Pop Viewers. And also you can find me at Witherspoon C on all social media platforms. And if you have any questions, just DM me or hit me up on LinkedIn. Well, Chris, it's been a blast talking. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. You're like the new Oprah. Just know that. (laughs) (laughs) I hope. I wish, right? Receive that. Um, Receive it. Receive it. I'm receiving. I'm receiving. (laughs) Um, And we'll be back in just a few moments with my final thoughts. Are you tired of not being recognized for your work? Are you ready to rise above the rest and accelerate to the next level? The Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program will help you take control of your career, develop your own unique brand, and catapult you to a whole new level of success. You are a top performer, and the Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program is what you need to get you there. Visit leadwithyourbrand.com to learn how. I just loved sitting down and talking to Chris Witherspoon, the founder and CEO of Pop Viewers. You know, you could really just feel his spirit coming through. And when he talked about being joyous as one of his brand attributes, you could feel it. And at the end of the day, that's what your brand is all about. What is that spirit that you bring? It's not what you do, but rather 
It's how you do it. What is it that people say about you after you've left the room? Chris was such a great example of that. Well, if you loved our show today, make sure that you are following us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll get a brand new show to you every single Tuesday. Plus, we are still celebrating Black History Month, so check us out at leadwithyourbrand.com slash blackvoices, where you can hear our full collection of some of our favorite guests from the Black and African American community. Check me out on social media. I'm at Jason Patria on all platforms. And most importantly, in your career, don't be that boring old commodity like coffee. Make sure you are a super premium brand like Starbucks. You've been listening to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores and uncovers exceptional career success stories and inspiring personal brand journeys with your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at leadwithyourbrand.com.